Welcome to Richard Ellis Talks with Richard Ellis. Thanks for allowing us to share this time with you. Honestly, it's our favorite time of the day where we get to hang out together and talk about how the truth of God's Word can make a huge difference in your life. And that's what we're going to hear from Richard in a way that only he can do with words of hope, insight, and humor. You may be stuck in traffic or stuck in life. Either way, today's message is going to help get you on the right track as you learn how much God loves you right where you are. So let's get right into today's talk. Here's Richard Ellis. The title of today's message is Hand On. To hand on something means to give something away that was given to you. It's interesting, the difference in a hand off and a hand on is what? A hand off is like a runner in a race has a baton and you hand off a baton and you don't have the baton anymore. So you don't have what you gave away. But the great thing about discipleship, about Christ, about this whole process we're involved with is you can hand on something without losing what you've given away. I'm very fascinated and had a pretty intense conversation just the other day with a couple of men about this specific thing. It is extremely perplexing to me that the church has specific instructions on what is supposed to happen and is probably one of the worst about doing what we're supposed to be doing compared to the rest of the world. Doctors. Doctors probably are closer to what is supposed to be going on than the church is because they actually hand on this information. And it's see one, do one, teach one, repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. And they have built into the system. You cannot just go to class and then run out there and do it. You have to see how it's done. You have to do one with supervision. You have to then be able to teach one or it doesn't get passed on. Now, I don't know why God designed it this way. If my computer goes down, everything on my computer can be offloaded saved, stored on a drive, taken from that computer and deposited on another computer and I can pick up where I left off. What's very fascinating is every human being starts from scratch. So there's no depositing a bunch of stuff. Everybody has to learn what previous generations knew, then pick up from there and move it forward. But how do you learn new stuff? It's handed on to you. Someone says, okay, here's this information. And as long as you're willing to learn and you pick an area, you can't know everything, but you pick an area and you say, okay, show me, teach me what you've got, and then I'm gonna build on that and take it to the next level and discover new things with that information. A pastor, what is the job of a pastor, of the elders of a church? It is to hand on to the saints Equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. You should hold the elders of this church to that. If we are not involved in handing on, not handing off something, but handing on something, and then you take it, and then our expectation, we'll read a little bit these verses, our expectation is then that once we've done it with you, hand it to you, you're going to pick that up and hand it on to someone else. Because if that doesn't happen, it dies. And a lot of the reason why churches are dead is they stop reproducing. They keep learning, they keep teaching, but they stop reproducing. And in the same way that families cease to exist if they stop reproducing, churches die not reproducing. We should always have newborns in our church, not just physically, but spiritually. It keeps us on our toes. So if you are involved in handing on 
whatever it is God has bestowed on you, what he's given us to do, then you're going to be a hands-on Christian. If you're not handing it on, you're going to stop. You will not know what to do. You will not engage. You will not know what to say because you're not around someone that's teaching you how to move that forward. Turn to Ezra, high priest, Old Testament. He was in Babylon, knew the king of Babylon, and took a group from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And this guy was passionate about God and about his word. Let's read this, chapter 7. And I'll start in verse 1. Now after these things in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, and son and son and son and son, the son and son and son and son. Buki, that's a good name. If you're naming a kid, Buki, that's a good one. Son and son and son. Verse 6. This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Now, does God have his hand more on some people than others? You better hope God has his hand on you. Now, when somebody has their hand on you, that can be an ominous thing. And I'll read you a verse about this in a minute. If someone has their hand on you, my dad was a big man, six foot nine, big hands. Big, scary big. You did not want his hand on you in a bad way. So that hand could be a terribly negative thing, but it could be an extremely positive thing as well because it provided a tremendous amount of protection. So you say, well, is God's hand on me? You cannot live a life of God, get your hand off of me, and then selectively say, have your hand on me. You say, get off of me, God, stop messing. I want to do what I want to do and I want to do it. But also part of that doing what I want to do is come back when I want to come back and you fix everything I've screwed up and then I want to be able to go back and do what I want to do. And you can't play it both ways. So when God puts his hand on somebody and you say, okay, Lord, as much as I know, it doesn't mean you can never go down, but you are determined to know him, to love him, to follow him, to seek him in his word, apply his word and his hands on you, everything's going to be different. And there's literally favor that comes with that. So look what he did. The hand of the Lord is upon him. And part of what came out of the result of that, the king granted him all the requests. And I'm not going to read the whole rest of this chapter, but there's a letter literally that was written from King Artaxerxes to Ezra that he could present all the way back to Israel. And nobody messed with him because it was from the king. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, according to the good hand of his God upon him. And Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, number one, had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, number two, and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. The same thing. Prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. So I want truth. I want you, God. I want to know what you say is right, what I say is wrong, where we don't match up. I want me gone. I agree with you. Prepared his heart, the law of the Lord, to do it. The old man that discipled me, Claude, told me repeatedly. He said, Richard, my life changed when I began to read the scripture with the intention of doing what it said. 
You wake up in the morning, you get your Bible, you read your Bible, and whatever it said, if you don't leave that word, if you don't hide it in your heart, and you leave the house, you leave whatever you're doing with no intention of doing what it says, your life is never going to change. You're merely going to have more information about God in your head, but your heart won't change, your life won't change. So you get frustrated. Why am I not growing? Because you're gargling truth and spitting it out. It's like being spiritually bulimic. You eat something and get rid of it, and you wonder why you get sick, you have no nourishment, and almost die. Read it, do it, and then what's the third thing? And to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. In other words, and then impart it to someone else. It is almost impossible, now listen to me, unless you're just gonna be a professional hypocrite, it is almost impossible to teach something you are not doing. Because sooner or later, it's going to fall apart if you're close enough, if you're hands-on enough with people for they can observe your life. Because they go, wait a minute. So you're telling me to do this, but you're not really doing it. I'm out. Now, unless they're wise enough to say, even though you're not doing it, I know it works, I'm going to do it. But it is very hard to pass on things and to ask kids with parents who tell them one thing and do something else. That is how you provoke a child to wrath. You tell them, tell them, don't say this, don't say that, and then that's what you do. And we wonder, where do kids learn all these things? Couldn't possibly be in our house. So Ezra, passionate about the scriptures, determined to do it, and then willing to teach it. And let me tell you something about how this naturally flows. If you love him, you love his word, and you read it, and you apply it to your own life, it is almost impossible not to find yourself teaching someone else. If you're doing it, you're going to be teaching someone else. Now, what are the implications of that? You say, well, are you judging me because I'm not teaching someone else? Kind of. Because how can you know what the truth is and it change your life and you not be willing to pass that on to somebody else? Unless you're just mean. You say, well, I'm teaching people on the fly. It's not how it works anywhere else in the world when it works. Corporations. I got people in here who work for big companies in this town, and I promise you, the executives in the companies, they have top-level executives that pick lower-level executives, and they are assigned, and they take them on and teach them how things are done in that company, or the company fails. It falls apart because nobody knows what to do when the top level moves on. So everybody's figured this out, but the group that should know about it. Look at Jesus, what did he do? God himself leaves heaven, comes to earth, born of a virgin, and basically disappears for 30 years. Shows up at the temple getting dedicated, you know, nothing. He's gone. Where is he? Working as a carpenter and preparing himself for what? Prepares 30 years to pick 12 guys to work with for three years, for three days, and then he's out. And that is his plan. Pay attention to the plan. It's a hand-on, hands-on plan. And so if that's what the leader did, if you are following the leader, you're going to be doing that. Why do you think, well, why does all this, why do you keep coming back to this? The mission statement of our church is what? Disciples making disciples. We lose people in our church. Sometimes they get tired of hearing it and they're not interested in doing it. So they go somewhere else where they don't have to hear it or do it. So what are you doing? What are you going to go do? Go attend to church? Anybody going to attend to church? But slowly, surely, you get passionate about the scriptures. You start living the scriptures, and then you say, I got to help somebody. The Holy Spirit prompts you, and all of a sudden, you're engaged. Do something. Pray. Ask God to use you. Go find answers. Take them back. Ask other people. You can do this.
Orphans should not be able to be parents, but they figure it out. They get help, they ask questions, and they move forward. Go to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. The church is very young, but it's multiplying. People are being saved. Verse 1, now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. There's food being passed out. These Hellenistic widows were getting left out. Then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. It's not gonna help anybody if we leave the scriptures and what we're supposed to be doing and just go serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. Now this is people to wait tables. Now look at who these people are early on. You say, well, some of them were Jewish and they had a foundation. I'll give you that. But listen to who these people are. Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Now, what does that mean? Did they give them certain powers? No, they authorized them. They kind of deputized them to say, okay, you're up, go do this job. And if you look a few pages later, Stephen is stoned for being a Christian, and he's this unbelievable human being, and so much so that he says, I see Jesus at the right hand, standing at the right hand. So Jesus got up for Stephen. That's what kind of guy he is. What kind of person are you? Are we? What is going on? Are you ready to serve? Are you ready to be up? Or have you retired? There is no retirement spiritually in the Christian life. If anything, make a bunch of money if you can and put enough away to live and retire so you can go to work. So you can maximize your time that you have left here and change the world. Do what God made you to do and put you here to do. Let's read another one. 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. And I'm going to read you this one just to be sure you know where you got what you have to hand on. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who makes you differ from another? For what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? I have nothing that was not given to me. I have life that was given to me. The things that have been taught me, those were given to me. You say, well, you read it. It was given to me. Someone else put it down for me to read. Everything I know, God gave to me. The wisdom I have, he's given to me. So you can't both say, oh, I'm all that. I am nothing. I am a servant of the most high God and he has blessed me. His hand is on me and he uses me and he can use you. But whatever you've got to hand on, it's because he's given it to you to hand on. Now, I'm going to read you, I've read this repeatedly, Philippians 3, verse 12, and I'm going to keep reading this because I am trying to get us, me, we, you, to do this thing if you have not done it already and don't know what it is, okay? Philippians 3, 12, and this is Paul writing the church at Philippi and explaining to them, he says, not that I have already attained, I haven't arrived, or am already perfected. But I press on, and what does he press on to do? That I may lay hold of that for which Christ has also laid hold of me. And by the way, this word lay hold is to take eagerly, to seize, to possess. Come here, Dorian. So Dorian stands up here, and I've illustrated this before. So I grab a Dorian, 
and he grabs me back and I go to let go and he says, no, 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 no. I wanna know why you grabbed me, okay? So if I grab a Dorian and he doesn't grab back, what are we doing? Nothing. So God says, I got a hold of you and you grab back and say, why? And the Dorian has a better understanding than ever what that is because God did grab a hold of him and he said, okay, what's going on here? And he grabs back and says, we're gonna have a conversation about this. I am going to seize your arm, seize your hand. You have seized me, I'm seizing you. I am holding on the definition, take eagerly. I wanna know why you got a hold of me. That should stir something in you sooner or later. Why did he save you? And I've gone over this repeatedly as well. You didn't get saved and immediately die. Why is that? Because you're here for a reason. Why is that? To be salt, to be light, to get something, to hand on to the people that are here. Because if God took everybody off the planet, you got no Christians. Then it's really in trouble. We are the salt, the preservative. We are the light. Without us, there's darkness, literal darkness. I have people who don't want me around, and it's not because I'm mean or not nice to them. I walk in the room and I represent light. They want me out of the room. And if you have that going on, don't take it personally. That's a compliment. Why has God laid hold of your life? Reach back and say, you got to show me. Show me what it is. How am I gifted? What is it you want me to do? What is it I'm supposed to be passing on to hand on to someone else? 1 Timothy chapter 4. And when somebody's ordained, it's kind of just like this. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. And this was written by Paul to Timothy, a young man that he was handing on what he had to. He said, let no one despise your youth. So, okay, you're younger than other people. It doesn't matter. But be an example to the believers in word, not just in word, in what you say, in your conduct, what you do, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things, give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Very simple instruction, very practical instruction, and embedded in here that your progress may be evident to all. Now, this is what's cool and not so cool. I know the people in this room well enough, almost everybody in this room, and I can almost go seat to seat and say, progress stopped. Progress, progress, progress stopped. Backwards. You say, well, what do you think I'm doing? You tell me. Because if it's progress, it's evident to all. Right? If you're teaching somebody something and they're learning something, then you observe what they're doing and go, wow, you must be doing this. You're practicing. You're moving forward. This is evident that you're changing. If you haven't changed in 20 years, something is terribly wrong. Your growth is stunted. If you've spent the last 20 years as a Christian and you have not handed anything on to anybody else, something is catastrophically wrong. You say, well, I'm having my quiet time and serving the Lord. I'm reading my Bible. Now listen to me, I'm not being critical at all. You cannot read your Bible indefinitely and apply the scriptures and something not change. It's not possible. Not possible. Because if you read it and you apply it, your whole life is gonna change. It's gonna be evident to all and you're gonna get so excited about what's going on with you that you're gonna see somebody who doesn't know what they're doing and go, dude, let me help you with that. Or doodah or whatever the female of that is. 
So you kick in supernaturally because you go, wow, that's terrible. I know what that feels like and looks like. That was me. Nobody helped me, but somebody finally helped me, and now I'm in a position to help you, so let's do this thing. Now, I, you know, if anybody's ever played golf with me knows I'm a terrible, I mean, I don't know anything about golf, and the more you learn about it, the realize you don't know anything about it. I'm over somewhere chipping, trying to clear my head the other day, just chipping balls up on a green in a practice area. And there's a guy about my age, maybe a little older, on the other side somewhere, he's chipping. It's not going well for him. And it's going a little better for me that day. And he finally comes over to me and says, could you show me how you do that? And I was like, oh my gosh. (laughs) What he was doing wasn't working. The change in my game was evident to him, and he wanted a piece of that if I was willing. And he was so frustrated, he was willing to ask a complete stranger to help him. Most people aren't that brave. They're not that desperate. But we're supposed to be that brave, and we're supposed to be that desperate that we pay attention and say, I'm going to hand this on. And you start engaging with people because you finally engage. So some of this is very encouraging if you get it. If you don't get it, it's going to start looking pretty silly like it already does. You say, well, I'm down right now. For 20 years? What are you doing? Get some help. Get back up. Now, the good news about this, you think, well, nothing's going to change. I sat with a guy five years ago, and I said, if you keep living the way you're going to live, you're going to prison or you're going to die. He came to see me the other day. He's going to prison. And I said, and if you don't listen and figure it out now, you're going to die. He didn't believe me before. He believes me now, and now he's willing to listen. And I'm willing to help him because I love him. And I don't want him to go to prison. He's going to go there. I want him to get out and get off his butt and live his life the way God intended. But you know what? All of us have got a different tolerance for pain. And God knows, okay, I'll keep bringing it until you say, uncle, then we get on with this. So a lot of the problems that we have as Christians, I'm not talking about non-Christians, Christians. We have a lot of problems that are self-inflicted. Do not be blaming. Why is God doing this to me? Climb in your closet and say, is there any chance I might have brought all this on myself? (laughs) Just saying. You don't want to ask that question. Because then you're confessing sin and saying, okay, will you help me out? He says, yeah, but you're going to have to be humble. You're going to have to ask some people to help you and get on with it. You say, okay, I'll do that. And then your life starts changing. We'll get back to Richard in a moment to close out today's talk. But first, I want to share something about our program. Our mission is actually very simple, to take the planet. So it's our prayer that these daily talks from Richard aren't something you only hear and enjoy, but that they inspire you to share with others. Together, we can do this. The message of the gospel is something everyone needs to hear, and that's why it's such a priority to us. So join us in this important mission. Call us at 855-6-RICHARD to say you're in. Or you can get on board with us through our website, richardellistalks.com. Well, here's Richard with some closing thoughts for us. 2 Timothy 1, and I love this little verse. 2 Timothy 1, 6, and this is Paul to Timothy again. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So that was a specific thing. Everybody, all believers have spiritual gifts. You have to have at least one or you can't be a Christian. You may have more than one, but you got one. So if you're gifted and nothing's happening, it's like a fire. The fire starts to die down. The word stir up literally means rekindle. So what do you do? You stir up those embers, you rekindle that fire, and all of a sudden, I'm back. The sad thing is I look at a room like this and know that beyond here, there are believers who are tremendously gifted and nothing. 
nothing. Shut down. Treasure, light under a bushel, shut down. You're going to die, you're going to go to heaven, just nothing. And if you just pull the lid off your life, stir that thing back up, you're back. Just like that. The ditch and the road are never very far apart. You say, well, I ran it in a ditch. Let's get you out of the ditch, back on the road, let's keep going. Well, I screwed up. Welcome to the party. We've all screwed up. Screwing up is different than being a screw-up. Don't define yourself by what you've done. I screw up, but I am not a screw-up. I am a servant of the Most High God. I am a child of a king, the king. So I may go down, but I'm not staying down because that's not who I am, not anymore. 1 Peter 5, we'll close with this one. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. You exalt yourself, he will humble you. You humble yourself, he will exalt you. So to Joseph and anybody else, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. In due time, he will lift you up. He will exalt you. This has been Richard Ellis Talks with Richard Ellis. There's only one reason we do this program, to take the planet with the good news of Jesus Christ. That's our message and our mission. And you have a vital part of doing that along with us. If you've been encouraged by these talks with Richard, be sure to share with someone about the change they've made in your life. And we'd love to hear your story as to how the talks have made a difference to you. Give us a call. We'd love to talk with you. 855-6-RICHARD. You can also reach us through our website, richardellistalks.com. And while you're there, check out all the fun and informative pages we put together for you, richardellistalks.com. While you're there, be sure to click on the Contribute tab at the top to send your generous gift. If the program is making a difference to you, your gift will make a big difference to us. Until next time, thanks so much for listening to Richard Ellis Talks.